Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome to Sea Ice World. This is the Sea Ice Research Camp at Cape Evans. And it's about 100 metres out from the shore on the sea ice. Uh, there's three different tents looking like really colourful rugs. There are some different coloured perspex squares bolted down onto the sea ice. Red, blue and green, that's one experiment. On the other side of the camp, some grey perspex panels bolted to the sea ice in various shades of grey. It's a very scenic campsite. Uh, there's the Barn Glacier and Mount Erebus on one side. Scott's Hut behind us. And it's not a quiet workspace because this is quite power-hungry. So there are generators running the whole time. Kia ora, and welcome to Voices from Antarctica from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance. So far in the series, we've met some of the creatures at the top of the Antarctic food chain, things like penguins and seals. But today in Part 8, the final episode, we're looking at the little things that run the world. Down here in Antarctica... You find them under the ice. It's like an upside-down garden. Andrew Martin. So the microalgae that we study are like the grass of the sea, and we're actually standing on them right now. The all-important base is actually right underneath us. What are those microbes that are living under the ice? There's a whole diversity. So we can talk about viruses, we can talk about bacteria, and we can talk about diatoms. Diatoms are particularly interesting to us because they are the organisms that are undergoing photosynthesis. So for the most part here on the ice there isn't all that much in the way of life. If you're lucky you might see the odd seal, um, you might see the odd bird, be it a skewer or a, or a snow petrel. So you can be forgiving for thinking that it's a pretty barren sort of environment, but actually it isn't. It's simply that it's literally under our feet right now. Slowly growing, as soon as the light comes back after the polar winter, the photosynthetic component of the community can start actively growing. And to the point where right now the ice is distinctly brown at the ice-water interface. So although any given microbe is invisible to the naked eye, there are so many cells that the ice is, is distinctly discoloured. And so behind us is a, a hole in the ice, which is a metre by a metre. Oh, so, and you can see the brown underneath. Exactly. So, so it's like a window into the undersea world. Absolutely. And as you can see, it's, it's like a, an undersea inverted garden. Like any good garden, it's full of plants. But to admire them... We need a microscope. What we have down the microscope at the moment is a melted ice core. So these microscopic plant-like organisms grow 
in the ice. They grow in tiny microscopic brine channels. So most of the ice is actually fresh water. Not all of the salt in the freezing process is expelled. It gets caught up in these tiny pockets. And that's actually where the microbes live. But have a look down there and tell me what you can see. I'm seeing lots of what look like spicules. Yeah, so that's one of my favourite diatoms. That's Nichia stellata. And so it forms these star-like chains. I'm looking for tons of life. It's a real three-dimensional world in there. It's an entire universe. There's just a few drops of melted ice here. So there's 20 million square kilometres of sea ice. And so arguably it's one of the most significant microbial habitats on the planet. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff. So the microscopic plants feed the krill, and everything in Antarctica eats krill either directly or via the fish that eat the krill. But studying this under-ice world is challenging, and the team here are finding different ways of doing that. Klaus Miners is drilling an ice core. So what are you up to this morning, Klaus? Taking two ice cores. One is for... A temperature profile and the other one is for salinity. So normally the temperature profile is it colder at the top and Yeah, yeah. So at the moment I think I measured the day before yesterday it was minus five point seven and then the bottom of the ice is normally relatively constant. It's minus one point nine, minus one point eight, which is the freezing temperature of seawater. And uh, sea ice is a two phase system, so it contains um, pure ice crystals but also fluid brine. So if I cool down the ice, more crystals freeze and the remaining fluid will be more salty. Seawater has a salinity of around 34 grams per per kilogram. And that is what normally the organisms are adapted to. And really cold sea ice can have a salinity which is five times higher, so up to 150. They can deal with that, but it's a pretty harsh environment. So it's cold, salty, and sometimes dark. And because um, these algae are adapted to these low-light conditions, they grow very early in the season. So they grow before there's more plant food growing in the water column. And that is very important for the ecosystem, because then, for example, Antarctic krill with the juveniles especially can't starve for long periods over winter, so they really need these ice algae. They come up from the water column, and graze at the bottom of the ice. You say the ice blocks out light. How much of the light does it block out? Oh, um, below this ice, um, I measured yesterday, we have only 1% of the sunlight. And it can be lower. And it's, um, yeah, so between 1 and 0.1%. So it's really, really dark down there. But it's relatively stable. So, you know, the sun is not going below the horizon. We have um, polar day at the moment. And the ice algae, because they are attached to this floating platform, um, they, they grow early in the season. That is one of the reasons there. So have you seen the temperature change over the last two or three weeks? Yeah, so it's here? a little bit warming up at the bottom. So, yeah, we had a couple of sunny days. And so the ice bottom is more porous a little bit. So and that's good for the algae. You will see when we take out the ice core, the bottom will be really brown. The last maybe two, three centimeters section above it will have a tint of brownish. And then it's very clear. So 95% of the 
total biomass here in the ice that we are standing off is in the, in the lowermost two centimetres. Most of the ice cores make their way into one of the tents, where Vanessa Lucia and the On Thin Ice team are scanning them. We have core five. Core five. The ice has certainly changed a lot in the last couple of weeks, so it's become a lot more brittle and quite fragile when we go to cut it. I'm using a Japanese ice-soaring blade. We take the base. So now I've got that in the clear box. I'm just going to pop that back into the plastic bag, into the dark, so that it's not affected by the light in the tent here. And that will stay in there just until the next disc comes out ready for scanning. And so one of the technologies that we've brought to this project is called the, um, a hyperspectral scanning system. So essentially the, um, the hyperspectral camera uses the visible light spectrum. Yep. And with our eyes we, we can see in three bands. We see in red, green and blue. Um, now this system here um, sees in around 170 different um, bands. So, so we're able to actually identify the exact band that the um, chlorophyll can be detected under, underneath, which is around 670 nanometers. And then from that we can start to break that down and look at um, how communities' um, spectral reflectance respond. So we're basically trying to create a little signature. And you look for that signature then in the data and then we know exactly the target that we're looking for. Now we're just doing the ice core scanning. So how long does it take to scan one of your... Uh, one core, it goes core. through a lot of series of measurements. We shine specific wavelengths of light and we can measure how much is passing through, how much is being reflected, how much is being absorbed. We can get an estimate of how much biomass there is, uh, how the algae is feeling perhaps, and all their condition as the season progresses and as of the, over space as well, right? One core takes around five, less than two, three minutes, one slice, and this, it might look like a normal image, but it's actually a quite big, dense chunk of data which we can then use to retrieve information. So at the moment it looks a bit like the surface of the moon. Yeah, exactly. And then he then changed illumination to see how it, the core reacts to different types of light and coming from different directions as well. So we really like trying to fingerprint, spectrally fingerprint, each of the um, algal communities this year. So yeah. it's like trying to work out this is a beech forest versus this is a pine forest versus this is yeah. a grassland. That's correct, yeah. So last year we were kind of like, well, how much vegetation is there versus bare ice? <laughs> and then this year, well, of that vegetation, now we can break that down into classes. Ready for the next one, guys? Ready for the next one. Emiliano, Zjebnik and Vanessa have lots of hyperspectral scanning to do. But I'm off in search of Andrew again to find out what it's all in aid of. So this is year two of an Inzari, New Zealand Antarctic Research Institute grant looking at the likely changes to primary production, so life at the bottom of the food chain, and how that might change. So we know that by about um, 2100 there'll be a 30% reduction in the volume and extent of Antarctic sea ice. We also know there'll be more precipitation, so there'll be more snow, and we also know that there will be more wind. So the project is tailored at linking those various elements to look into Antarctica's future.
And that's where the large coloured panels laid out on the ice come in. Yeah, so what we're looking at, Alison, is a, an installation. Um, it does look like an art installation, but this is a science installation. Exactly. I love the interface between art and science. So about a month ago, this, these coloured arrays were put in. So we have three red, three green and three blue. So scientists love their replication. So these are sheets of perspex pegged out onto the sea ice. Exactly. But each sheet of perspex is about 1.2 by 2.4. So it takes eight of them to make a 5 by 5 array. And for all the obvious environmental reasons, we were really concerned with not losing any perspex. So I tested a whole range of screws. I've had this perspex uh, exposed to conditions as low as minus 80, just to make sure that it doesn't go too, too brittle. Um, and the good news is that it's a, an OK way um, in order to manipulate the communities below us. So of all the incoming solar irradiation that we have today, and today's a relatively bright sunny day, on a red array it is only red light that is available to the microbes beneath us. Same with the blue and same with, with the green. Of the photosynthetic microbes, they typically utilise either blue or red. They don't utilise the green. In a terrestrial sense, that's why we see plants, leaves and things as green is because they're reflecting that sunlight. They're not as interested in it for the photosynthetic process. Oh, this wind is a bit unpleasant. It's really making the flags flap. Anyway, so that's the red, blue and green panels and then there are the grey panels. These are our shades of grey, as I like to call it. There aren't quite 50, but there are three. So it's a way of limiting the amount of light that's reaching that microbial community. So really our focus this year is on the future in Antarctica with respect to increased precipitation. So in an Antarctic context that is snow, very rarely does it rain. So this is going to be snow sitting on top of the sea ice? Absolutely. But then with that increased precipitation comes increased wind. And so what we're interested in understanding is what I call state transitions. So low snow to high snow, high snow to no snow, high snow to medium snow. And if we were to manually shift the snow, we would be here for a very long time. So what the acrylic allows us to do, in a way, is to cheat. So rather than moving huge volumes of snow, when the time is right, we can unbolt the sheets and we can move them around. Because you think that what's going to, the snow doesn't settle on the sea ice it blows around, is that the thing? So sometimes you get a lot of snow, sometimes it's cleared right away. Exactly. If there's a lot of snow and those organisms become highly shade adapted, if they're suddenly exposed to too much they photo inhibit it, if you like, it fries their photosynthetic machinery. Now, we're not at the stage where we can say conclusively that, that yes, either with this experiment or looking into Antarctica's future, that primary production will stall, but we want to understand that as a response threshold. So a lot of our work is thinking about the likely changes in the future, be it light, temperature, um, ocean acidification type dynamics, and thinking, what are those changes likely to be? 
And then how robust is that microbial community to those changes? Right, so that's the end of day one here at the sea ice microbe camp. And I've been waiting all day for the chance to drop my hydrophone down one of those holes in the ice. I know, we've had a Weddle Seal Symphony on the podcast before, but it's so good. I think we can have some more. morning from sea ice camp it's day two for me that's today's flag not quite as windy as yesterday but not calm either my first visit this morning is to phd student fraser kennedy i am interested in the ecophysiology of these communities uh, specifically the chemical signatures that they produce under various stresses. And what I'm doing here is we have constructed a little robot. So it's like a little submarine. It is about a metre long and probably about um, 0.5 of a metre wide. It has four pins on each corner with rubber stoppers on top. And two of those have heated spikes. So the idea is that we drive it underneath the ice and we come up underneath. And these rubber spikes act as, I guess, pins which, which sit the bot um, directly under the, the sea ice algae on the bottom of the ice. In the middle of this bot, there's a big, uh, there's sort of a cage to protect um, these various sensors that we have on the bot. These sensors uh, measure these chemical signatures and they are very, very fragile. Most of them are made out of glass and they are very small. So we're talking a 100 micron tip of glass. So getting those very fragile sensors up under the ice measuring um, these chemical signatures that the algae produce is quite a challenge. So this year we've, we've got a bot and because of various... Antarctic logistic constraints, um, the C-17 breaking down multiple times, our yes, cargo... again and again. And again and again and again, yeah. So this only arrived yesterday. This only arrived yesterday. How long have you been here at the camp? We've been here two weeks and we're in our last ten days. <laughs> so, so you're feeling a little desperate. We are under pressure, yes, under the pump. You've got another logistical problem. <laughs> We have multiple logistical problems. Um, our power supply is not adequate. We run here on generators, um, and the output of that generator is not enough to run this absolutely beast of a robot. So we have requested the cavalry arrive with a bigger generator today, hopefully, and plug that in. And let's have our fingers crossed that we can actually get it in the water for the first time on its maiden voyage. We should point out that you had actually had a special generator 
for this robot. Yes. But that, I think, has even failed to get to Antarctica. Yes, it's still in Christchurch, unfortunately. So, <laughs> ah, logistics, logistics. So that's the problem with polar science, is everything takes a very long time. We had a seal in our hole this morning. I was sitting here um, putting the bot together, and a seal poked up, and we have a, we have a board across this ice hole. Um, to stop seals coming up, but the seal came and lifted the lifted the board up and blew its nose at me this morning while I was doing this. It needed to breathe. At, it did, <laughs> but it scared the living daylights out of me, and I jumped a mile. So these are the challenges, again, we face, not just with the logistics, but with the natural population of seals. Got to love those seals in the holes in the ice, though. Hey. Meanwhile, in the other tent, Vanessa and her team are having some better luck with their Star Wars-themed underwater robot. What are you about to do, Vanessa? Ah, so this is um, our third deployment of the TIE Fighter. It's about to go and do a transect underneath the blue panels. So our part of the project is looking at um, new technologies for surveying and making maps underneath the sea ice of the algal communities. In the past, traditional methods were to take cores. But that gives us a really really um, limited view of what we're trying to look at. I guess it's like looking in the dark with a, with a torch, right? So what we really wanted to do is expand that view. So rather than looking at those individual points, work out how those points make up the pattern of the variability of the sea ice algae. So the TIE Fighter, our hyperspectral camera, goes into a housing and it's got an um, optically clear lens on it. And under here we also have um, some GoPro cameras and some live camera streams so we can see that data being acquired in real time. And then these skis here flip up underneath the ice and that allows us to transport the TIE fighter like on an underwater cable car. Our plans for the future are to put them on a remotely operated vehicle. Then we won't be um, constricted by the cable car, we'll be able to go everywhere off-road. <laughs> so this um, this system here floats up underneath the ice and then and then allows us to scan underneath. Yeah. I see movement. The um, I see TIE fighter's just started to move. Uh, I'm ready for that acquisition. The TIE fighter genuinely has downhill skis attached to the top of it so it can glide across the underside of the ice through the fields of microalgae. Vanessa is having to wind the winch by hand since the C-17 cargo woes have meant the mechanical winches haven't arrived. And at this point in the process you hope the seal doesn't turn up. <laughs> the seal can turn up whenever the seal turns up now but when we go under a deployment... Um, it's suboptimal if the seal is in the hole. There's just too many things <laughs> competing for space. Um, but this year we've noticed the seals have been a lot younger and quite shy, so if they even see us appear or move the boards, then they disappear. It's just part of the natural environment we need to contend with. How's the data looking, Emiliano? Today is a very good day. We try to choose days which are very sunny. So sun brings a lot more light that goes through the ice, which pretty much like in normal photography, you can uh, you get a better picture, right? You get more, more light, more photons going through the ice, and therefore an improved signal. So more signal leads us to, to better interpretation, and better interpretation we can you know, get a better understanding of, of, of what's happening down there. You can see how the patterns really change. Not only we can, it's difficult to access, but it's also very variable, which makes it very difficult 
to know how much there is down there. So it varies at the millimetre scale, it varies at the metre scale? Yeah, exactly. From millimetre to metre to over regional areas, it also changes a lot, depending on the ice. And also over years, can change a lot depending on the year. So it's, it's really needed that we try to develop these, these technologies to, to tackle the way we gather information about them. Yeah. And meantime, you're still feeding out cable? I am still feeding out cable. At this point, I think I'll go home with one arm larger than the other. <laughs> Drastically, see a change in the blue color. Really drastic. I think we're in. Good to know. Thank you. It's awesome. So outside, off come the blue panels. So this is a case of let there be light. Let there not be blue disco floor saturated light. <laughs> is that what it looks like from underneath, a bit of a disco floor? It does. When we first um, looked underneath with the ROV after the panels had all been laid, and we had about um, 12 5 by 5 metre squares um, in red, green and blue, all beautifully spaced. It did look like a 1980s disco floor. It does make me wonder what the seals think of it all. And obviously the experiments are still in progress, or, in Fraser's case, not quite yet started. But what have the team found so far? The results have been really, really intriguing. So there is more life underneath the coloured panels. We were not necessarily expecting that because we've limited the wavelengths to blue, to green or to red. But all those panels actually have more life underneath them. What's equally exciting, there are different microbes living under the different colours. So what's currently growing under the blue is actually quite different than the red, and it's also quite different to the green. We were to project into a scenario 2100, 30% reduction in the volume and extent of, of sea ice. There's likely to be some winners and some losers. And that's a common thread or common story that people talk about with respect to, to climate change. Rather than an unwanted eco-disaster, you could just get a shift in how ecosystems are, are structured. The challenge in an Antarctic sense is that if we shift from the ecosystem as it's currently structured, which is sea ice algae, krill, and then the various charismatic megafauna, as I like to call them, if we have less sea ice, you don't get this all-important aggregation of simple life forms within the ice. And krill in particular, when they're in their larval stages, have to graze on the underside of the ice. An adult krill can store fat, can store sugars to survive the, the, the winter months. The larval stages of krill cannot do that. And so if you have less, less sea ice algae packed into the bottom of the ice, then the concern is that there will be less krill and as soon as you get less krill, there will be a decline in penguin populations. Um, there will be a decline in a range of other higher trophic organisms all the way through to baleen whales. It's time for me to leave the sea ice micro people. They still have eight days in which to try and finish as much work as possible. Fraser and Andrew will be desperately hoping the generator and the power supply will work for them. Um, they're hoping to be able to pick up the Perspex panels, but today is windy and the wind is getting worse.
So, Scott, you heard some news about the helicopter? Yeah, so we've just um, found out from Scott Bass that Minna Bluff has been um, clouded over, which is usually a good indicator of poor weather coming in from the south. Um, easily backed up by the flags um, going <laughs> full tilt in that direction. But, um, so what we'll do is we'll um, hold off on the helicopter flight just for now. We'll move our gear from where it is just into by the tents here. That way they're not going to disappear if the wind does pick up like it's supposed to. And we'll hurry up and wait. Exactly. Oh, joy! <laughs> no change, really. <laughs> I'm kind of used to this now. Yeah, exactly. It would have surprised me if it had been straightforward. <laughs> In the same way that it'll surprise me if my C-17 gets in tomorrow and takes me home on time. <laughs> yes, it would seem that's not going to be the case. <laughs> okay, bag moving. Yes, exactly. I'm all yours. I do make it back to Scott Base, but then I bump into Shul. The logistics coordinator, and in shades of episode one, she has some news about the C-17 and my flight back to New Zealand. The plane at the moment is broken. Again? Uh, again, yes. Well, they've had a bit of trouble with the planes this year, unfortunately. Um, anyway, it's, it is just one of those things that we deal with, and so we're hoping it's going to get fixed very shortly and can come down and pick you up. So if they're running behind, I was meant to be on a flight today. I should, in fact, be sitting on the C-17 as be. we speak. You should be, but hopefully tomorrow. But we haven't had confirmation of that yet? No. I do eventually make it home and back to work at RNZ. I'm Alison Balance, and you've been listening to Voices from Antarctica, which has been engineered by Phil Benge. A big thanks to Antarctica New Zealand for hosting me and my microphones on the ice. A big thanks, too, to Vanessa Lucia, Andrew Martin, Emiliano Cimoli and Zibnik Malinowski, who are all from the University of Tasmania, and Klaus Miners, who's from Australian Antarctic Division. This is the final episode of Voices from Antarctica, but you can find the entire series on the Our Changing World webpage at rnz.co.nz or search for RNZ Our Changing World wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this series, you might also like Voice of the Iceberg and Voice of the Kākāpō, which you can find in the same place. Many thanks for your company. And to finish... Here are some of my favourite sounds from this icy audio adventure series. Kioromai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 